one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman. England is home to some incredible castles from the medieval period. And this week, I've gone to visit one of them. I've come to Norwich to visit its Norman castle and keep. This castle was once a royal palace and now a major new project is on the way to regenerate it. So I'm here to find out more about that project and what it's like to manage a collection in a building that's been in use for 900 years. The museum here is also home to one of the finest collections of Anglo-Saxon artefacts in the country because it contains finds from all over East Anglia. To find out more, I'm going to be shown around by Dr Tim Pestle, who's the curator of archaeology here. So join me now for a behind-the-scenes tour of Norwich Castle Museum and Art Gallery. Okay, so here we are. And Tim, thank you so much for meeting me and taking me around today. It's an absolute pleasure. It's lovely to see you. So can you just introduce to our listeners now where we are? We are in Norwich Castle and more specifically the castle as it survives today is principally the mound, the mop that was at the centre of the castle complex and a stone keep, the Norman building. And of course a lot of people describe the keep as the castle but a castle is a far, far larger structure And being a royal castle, Norwich had a number of these baileys with outer earthworks that supported it. So we had a whole series of ditches that you had to go across via bridges. There would have been palisades or wooden walls and then later stone walls built above them. And you went through three of those before you even got to the keep. So it was an enormous complex. And we know that over 90 houses were destroyed just to site the castle at Doomsday, because it's recorded in Doomsday Book. And so it's a reminder, really, of the, the devastation that the Norman Conquest wrought. And very sadly, we're seeing this same sort of occupation going on right now in Ukraine. It really reminds you how an occupying army has to really establish itself as a military centre. And the reason that Norwich is chosen is almost certainly because at the Conquest, Norwich is one of the stellar towns of Anglo-Saxon England. It's one of the places that is booming economically. It's getting richer. It's therefore growing in size. 
And fairly obviously, if you're an incoming Norman, a conquering Norman, you want to put down a marker that you now control this centre. And of course, you're going to get richer by controlling all of the trade in that centre. And so that's why a royal castle gets established here. And OK, so we're going to go in and talk a little bit more about the keep, especially and what's going on with that in a moment. But what's happened to this building later on? Because it's got to have quite a rich history in the time since the Norman period, hasn't it? It is. This is one of the challenges of doing a, a redevelopment on a site like this, that it's been continuously occupied for over 900 years. And so wherever you do, you can't put a spade in the ground or a screw in the wall without hitting some sort of historical or archaeological fabric. It's originally, obviously, a Norman castle, but it very quickly becomes used as a prison and a royal prison for the entire county of Norfolk. And then subsequently, because the prison buildings were considered inadequate, they were rebuilt in the 1780s by Sir John Soane. And very quickly, they in turn became considered not fit for purpose. And so they were rebuilt in the 1820s by William Wilkin. And in turn, by the 1880s, they were seen as outdated and a new prison was built outside the city. And this is, I guess, one of the strange things, that the high security prison for the county was right in the centre of the city. All the prisoners were then marched up to Mousehold Heath, where the new prison was built. And then they had this enormous complex and there was a decision that had to be made about what to do with it. And it was turned into the county museum. And that's what you see here today. Fantastic. Well, let's go inside and and have a little look around. So, Tim, what are we doing now? We're walking through a tunnel, and where are we going? Well, we've walked through a passageway that takes us through the actual Norman Mound, and we're now going up a staircase that is the hole at the top of the tunnel, and that goes into the wider museum. And actually, this is where the archaeology department used to be, and it's now the learning department. So you can see we've got some of the Victorian cabinets here that belong to the original Victorian Museum, which we used to house our archaeology in. They're now in up-to-date containers and cupboards downstairs in our stores. But this is part of the prison that Edward Boardman then converted into a museum in the 1880s. And so this is why it's a beautiful Victorian space. Wow, so it's, it's almost like the archaeology of the archaeology, isn't it, yeah, in a way? We've had to start really looking at our own history a bit more. And if we come through here, then we're actually into the museum proper. And this is our natural history gallery. Oh, yes, we're just with, facing uh, a, a tiger. tiger. <laughs> <Yeah>. Not <laughs> what I was expecting. Roaring. <laughs> Not a local tiger, I'm presuming. No, no. I mean, this is uh, one of the interesting things about this particular space. It's very, very popular as a natural history gallery. And, of course, with lots of stuffed animals, it's not very politically correct having the stuffed animals, but it's certainly very popular with the kids, particularly the polar bear, which is, uh, at the moment, off display, but it's been something that generations of children, like the tiger, have enjoyed. Well, that's the thing about museums like this, isn't it? That there's a legacy of a long time period of there museums is. and what they were and you know, who they were for and, and all of that. A museum like this has been all about families coming back and back and back and people can remember certain things. And it's always a challenge to be able to have things that are familiar, that people want and enjoy and remember enjoying themselves, but at the same time having changing displays and also being able to reflect changes in scholarship. And so one of the things that a museum is all about is research and being able to bring across those latest stories and interpretations. And that's particularly true in things like archaeology, where we know the picture is changing so much. And just thinking back 20 years, 
when we first put some of the displays up, we know a lot more now, not just we've got new objects, but we know more about how those objects were used and we have to reinterpret those displays and change them accordingly. Absolutely, I mean, it's, it's something we're constantly working on. It's organic, isn't it? it it's it not is. set and, in stone. And this is what I really love about working in a museum, that you see so much new material all the time and it's changing the way that you look at what you've already got. And it's incredibly exciting if you're working in an academic field as well as being able to present those stories to the public. So it's not just about writing highfalutin stuff that no one reads. It's actually getting stuff out there when it's still at the cutting edge and everybody can sit and enjoy it, which I really like. Perfect. Brilliant. So where are we heading now? Well, we're now in what we call the Rotunda, which is the central part of the museum. And this is actually where the governor's house stood at the centre of the prison. So when the prison was rebuilt in the 1820s, it was built on a panopticon idea with the all-seeing eye at the centre of the prison. And we have all these radiating prison wings which then got turned into galleries very conveniently in the 1880s. And so what we're going to do is go through our Boudicca and the Romans gallery and up into the Anglo-Saxon Viking gallery. Perfect, thank you. So we just walked up some stairs now and into a museum in a little bit of turmoil because of the building works going on. So we walked past some railings of medieval costumes and we've got bits and pieces yes. <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> I mean, it must be so challenging to sort of manage what is a fantastic historic building with later heritage of the Victorian parts to it and you're trying to turn it into a new modern museum and you've got all these collections. So quite a challenge. It is. And these big projects don't come along, luckily, that often. They seem to come along regularly enough. I mean, I was lucky enough to be the curator of this particular gallery, which we opened in 2004. And as you can see, it's now a storeroom because we've closed a lot of other parts of the museum off because we're rebuilding in them. And so this is temporarily closed. We've also got only displays left on the north side of the gallery because the south side was on the other side of a wall that was having steel joists moved around by a crane so we didn't want anything slipping lumping through a wall and knocking an anglo-saxon pot off so, sounds uh, sensible <laughs> yes definitely so that's been closed off but what you can see in the, the dim and dark cases that we've got here is one of the finest Anglo-Saxon collections in the UK. It's absolutely amazing. And it's not surprising because East Anglia, Norfolk's a big county within East Anglia, is the first place that you would have bumped into when you rode across from the German homelands as a migrant. Now, of course, we know that migration is a lot more complex than that. And the early Anglo-Saxon period is certainly a lot more complex than that. But the material culture that we have here shows how there was this general trend towards a more Germanic way of living and dying, particularly burying your family and friends with their objects from life. And we can see a particularly good selection of them in this particular case. And the one that stands out here, of course, is the Binham Bracteate hoard. And Bracteates are these gold pendants that get used in the 6th century, particularly in Scandinavia. There's only about a 1,000 known from the whole of Northwest Europe, in particular in Scandinavia. And the importance of this one is that it was found as a hoard. And that is the only time that we found brackets used as a hoard in England. And that in turn suggests that we've got the same ritual practice going on. It's not just they're wearing the same sorts of jewellery, they're actually believing in the same sorts of things on the continent. 
and then bringing those beliefs across with them to England. And that's what makes this so fantastically important. And I know this isn't an easy question to answer, but does this suggest that we have quite a lot of contact with Scandinavia directly in this part of the world in this period? Or? I think there's an enormous amount. And one of the things that I know we were talking about earlier is just the lack of research that has been done, the amount of research that needs to be done to try and bring to bear some of the modern analytical techniques that we now have to look at the skeletal populations in particular to see where people were brought up and where they died. There's an enormous potential for, for looking at this and you can see in this particular case there's material from the North German plains, from Scandinavia, from Norfolk. It's all linked and bearing in mind that they were very very able seafarers it only takes with a good wind three days to get across from Norway to Norfolk. What else would you expect? That's such a good point, I think. We tend to forget that. We tend to think that people were just more or less mobile and just stuck back home when you don't have the modern technology. But actually, it's three days. It's not a lot. And these no. people are used to it. And look at Scandinavia. Boating and maritime activities have been since at least Bronze Age, if not earlier. Well, and absolutely. And this is the point, really. They're going around in ships in the Bronze Age across the open sea. And so if you've got that going on, 3,000 years ago, then why on earth shouldn't the Anglo-Saxons one and a half thousand years ago be doing that? They're extremely sophisticated people and the sea is, with rivers, by far the quickest way of getting around. And so there are going to be these international connections between people. And you, know, you can see here, we've got a pot with decorated face on it from Markshall. And very sadly, there was one almost identical parallel from Verden in Germany, which the RAF successfully destroyed in the okay. last war. But from photographs and drawings of it, we can see that they're probably made by the same potter. And wow. it just shows you this sort of close connection between peoples that are on different sides of the North Sea. Yeah, and I think maybe we've created more recently this idea of our separate countries and nations as being so distinct, but that's a very modern concept, isn't it? But actually looking at things like the pottery and the material culture is actually showing that connection. It's really it, it, quite... Completely, and you need to think not in terms of nation-states, which really only developed in the 10th century, but more kin groups, family groups. And that's what the heroic poetry of the period starts to really give you the picture of, isn't it? It's individual war leaders and their war bands, and a lot of that is going to be kin-based. So the villages where you grow up are likely to be extended kin groups, and that's why you're going to get feuding going on between different kin groups, and that's really the origin of building up these bigger and bigger territories. Okay, so let's bring it back to where we are. So we're in Norwich, and we are looking now at the, what we sort of really talk about as very much the early medieval period or early Anglo-Saxon period, I suppose. What is the situation for what then becomes Norwich later on? What's here? In well, the area? interesting thing about Norwich is not a lot in this period. The centre is just outside Norwich as the present medieval city. So the real focus in the 5th century is Caister, Caister by Norwich. And that's a mile or two outside the city centre. And it's the site of Venter Icenorum, the Venter of the Iceni, the market town. And it's a Roman walled site later on. And that provides a focus of occupation in the Anglo-Saxon period. And in fact, it's probably all the way through to something like the 8th or 9th century. Now, we know that we have settlement in Norwich from the 9th century, but it looks as though it starts off as a series of smaller settlements along the river, 
and then gradually it takes off and that's probably due to the navigability of the river. It means that they're able to bring material up the river to what then becomes Norwich far more easily than along the Tass to Caister and that's what economically leads that centre to expand and then to take off and you can see that in the subsequent archaeology which is a little bit further over there in the gallery. <laughs> can we go and have a look at yes, that? Absolutely. Oh, right, okay, so manhandling some big packing material here and we've got another display cabinet. What are we looking at now, Tim? Yeah, well, hidden behind the packaging is the material from Harford Farm, which is a cemetery site that overlooks that Roman town, Caister, and it shows an exceptionally high-status series of burials. So this is the local aristocracy that almost certainly would have ruled the town. So we know, for instance that one of the graves here has a couple of coins, early pennies, or colloquially called shatters, and they are of the same type that we found in a trading area just outside the wall town of Caister. So there's obviously economic activity that's going on here in the 8th and 9th centuries, and the people that were probably overseeing that chose to be buried with their finery in a site on the hill overlooking that. And it's almost certainly a territorial claim that they're making this is our landscape we control it you can see our market down there and look how rich we are and it is an absolutely exceptional brooch that one of the ladies was buried in and she had been wearing this brooch which was obviously an heirloom piece it's been repaired and the best thing about it is the back because it has a runic inscription that says Luda repaired the brooch (laughs) (laughs) fantastic convenient (laughs) That's great. Right, packing material goes back up. Let's have a look so at the, the back. back. of the brooch. And we can see very crudely there's an interlace decoration along the bottom and he's got his name scratched in above. And the name Luda is a personal masculine name and depending on the sound value of the rune it's either Luda or Tudda and that's a name that we also find in the Norfolk villages of Ludham Lud Tuddenham. So again, you can see how these personal names then lend themselves to the settlements that we drive around today. So that suggests that this is someone local who's doing that work, who's repaired it, presumably, or...? Possibly. The brooch itself is of a Kentish type, and that probably accorded it greater prestige when it comes to East Anglia, let alone the fact that it's made of gold on the front with garnets that are inlaid, fine workmanship and a silver back to it. But there are a couple of runes that are on there which are the earliest type of rune. We can't say specifically, well, these are East Anglian, but it does show that the craftsman himself was literate and therefore an educated person, so much so that he was wanting to display this on the back of the brooch. Yes. Well, it's quite odd that you just have the repair, not the maker, not the owner, but it's yes, the repair. Yes, absolutely. And the irony is, actually, the repair is pretty crude. <laughs> <laughs> I think his writing is probably better than his jewellery. So he's showing off a bit all <laughs> yes, these other right. skills, going, you know, yes, I'm not that good at repairing, but I can write. <laughs> Throughout June on Not Just the Tudors, we're honouring Queen Elizabeth II's Platinum Jubilee by focusing on queenship in the 16th and 17th centuries. 
I'm Professor Suzanne Lipscomb, and all this month with my guests, I'll be exploring the coronations of Tudor queens, queens regnant and queens consort, who wielded power in ways we haven't thought about. Really, when we begin to look at queen consorts, we notice that there's a lot of ways at the Renaissance court that women could hold informal power through their relationship with the king. Then there's the queen who ruled over the Spanish Netherlands and the female Swedish king. You heard that right. What did a 17th century person actually mean by saying, oh, she dresses like a man? If she would have worn male clothing, she wouldn't have been able to rule Sweden. So for a month of all things magisterial and monarchical, look no further than not just the Tudors from History Hit. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This gives you that real personal perspective because you've got several people here. You've got the person who was buried with it and the people who were involved in this object's biography, I suppose. That's right. And uh, uh, one of the other things I find particularly fascinating from a human dimension is that very recently we had another gold and garnet pendant of the same sort of date as the Hartford Farm brooch that was excavated from another female grave, Windfarthing, on the county border between Norfolk and Suffolk. And when you think about the very few people that would have had the money to have these sorts of brooches, they almost certainly knew each other in life. And it again reminds you of these social circles that the county set, if you like, of the 8th century, the 7th century. And it really brings alive the fact that it was a very limited society and your chances and opportunities within that society were almost certainly predicated by your birth. And of course, we don't really have the written sources to illuminate so much of this in this particular part of the country, do we? No, we don't. We, we're very poorly served by Anglo-Saxon documentary sources in East Anglia generally. And so a lot of the picture that we can build up of Anglo-Saxon East Anglia is down to the archaeology and these particular sorts of objects that have come up. But in a sense, it's not only what makes it so fascinating, we're also very well served by the archaeology in East Anglia. We have such a 
a fantastic array of material and a really good record of discoveries and publication within Norfolk and Suffolk. So a bit of an untapped resource, I suppose, in many ways. Yes, it can keep many people going for many generations yet with just what we've got and of course we're discovering new stuff all the time which is even better yes absolutely and are you getting a lot of metal detectors finds to add to this as well the the metal detecting is absolutely crucial they are the archaeologists eyes and ears and this is why it's so important to have a, a good relationship with those metal detectorists because by and large metal detectorists are fantastic and it's the usual one or two that spoil it for everybody by giving a bad name but we're really lucky in Norfolk and it's the same in Suffolk we've had very good relationships for 30 years and so we've got really good fine spots for a lot of the material and it's absolutely crucial it's those fine spots that then tell us about the patterning to see where certain things are more popular if there's a local trait for instance to a brooch so we can see for instance brooches over here that we've got arranged and these are actually 10th century brooches but they are of a distinct East Anglian style. The vast vast majority have been found by metal detectorists but because they've recorded their fine spots we can see well yes most of these are found from Norfolk and from Suffolk therefore this is almost like a badge of local identity. It's easy to create any number of designs but the fact that People have chosen to have this particular design for their brooch that they put on their clothing suggests not just that it's maybe cheap, but that there is a conscious thought behind it and therefore there is a certain way of dressing and in turn that is your identity. And that's something that you see throughout the early medieval period and especially later yeah. when you have more Scandinavian input and you've got people coming in in the Viking Age across this part of the world especially those identities are very much expressed in things like jewellery, aren't they? They are, and I think one of the intriguing things when it comes to the Scandinavian involvement in England, again, largely found through metal detecting, are things like emblems which show a religious nature. Now, we're very familiar with the Anglo-Saxons being Christian, and there's a great deal of Christian iconography. The brooches that we were looking at a minute ago have a cross in the centre of them, and it's not accidental. But one of the things that we do have from the Viking world are things like Thor's hammers. And Norfolk has more Thor's hammers than anywhere else in the UK. That's, yeah, and that's quite something, actually. So there's yeah. a lot yeah. of Viking evidence here. Absolutely. One half of our display case is still at least stocked with material. We haven't had to take the, oh, the ones here off display. And these are a case in point. So you can see here that we've got seven Thor's hammers on display. I have another two in the stores waiting to go on display. And there is an enormous number of these Thor's hammers relative to the overall finds from England that have come from Norfolk. Now, is that just because we've got better liaison with metal detectorists? That's quite possibly something to do with it. Is it the fact that Norfolk is a big county anyway? Yes, that's again probably got something to do with it. But I do also wonder whether there was actually more of a predilection for wearing Thor's hammers in Norfolk and East Anglia. It may be more of the local Viking religious belief that focused on identity with Thor, wanting to wear Thor's hammers. That's speculation, of course, because the picture is constantly emerging. But it is very, very interesting. And is that perhaps, again, something to do with more of a Danish 
Viking population settling in East Anglia compared to, say, more of a Norwegian one in the north? Are they more keen on adherence to Thor? We don't know. But these are the sorts of questions that we're now able to ask because we've got the objects. And, of course, I'm going to have to bring in the great army here yes. <laughs> looking at these because, actually, a couple of these hammers that we're looking at the display here are very similar. One is extremely similar to the one found at Repton, the great yes. army. There's a similar one from Torxy, which, again, is the great army camp. And there's another almost identical match that's found in southern Norway at Kaupang as mm. well, which is practically identical, almost the same mould as the one yes. from Repton. And, of course, we do have a link nearby, certainly to Thetford and Bury St Edmunds as well, of the Great Army yes. coming here. So could another possibility be that, that these are actually, you know, this area is linked very closely to sort of these there, military groups? There has to be. And just to make you happy, number three up <laughs> yeah. there, that lead horse hammer oh, is yeah. from Thetford. Perfect. Well, exactly. So, that's what I wanted to hear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, you know, that's a possibility as well, isn't it? That we know that we have these military, early military groups, whereas perhaps in the north... You have more settlements, again, from other areas, possibly. But we don't actually know that much about these Viking armies here, do we, really? No, we don't know nearly enough about the social dimension to the army on the move. We hear from little snippets in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle about the the camp followers, the, the women and children being besieged, but we don't really know enough from the physical evidence that we have yet. And that's really, I guess, partly because we've only really understood things like the overwintering camps in the last 10 years. Yes, we knew about Repton because of the excavations that have been going on initially with under the Biddles. But the discovery of these new camps has really only been a relatively recent phenomenon. And again, down to metal detecting. And it's all down to this liaison, isn't it? And one of the things that intrigues me is that one of the Thor's hammers that we have here has a gold filigree inlay to it. And there's only one other Thor's hammer from Britain that has that. Very sadly, it was published in a metal detecting price guide with no location, just Norfolk. So we don't know whether that's true or not. But presumably the fact that we have two, probably from Norfolk, suggests that there is some atelier here producing these deluxe Thor's hammers Mm -hmm. in silver with gold filigree inlay, and therefore that there is a regional population that you can make these things for, that there are enough of them sitting around wanting to buy a Thor's hammer to go and buy this particular type, which again I think is fascinating because those ones aren't really paralleled in Scandinavia. No, that's a good point, actually. That's a really good point. And also it suggests a slightly longer-lasting presence as well. Like yeah. These aren't just coming in one big battle moving on. No. But a- if there's a- enough an industry around them, that's... Absolutely. I think this is the really crucial thing. A lot of the sort of Viking material that we have here shows that they're maintaining these connections with the homeland. And I guess it's not dissimilar to the fact that we have in the second half of the 20th century, for instance, a large Asian population that has moved into Britain, become British but still maintains very close relationships with the Indian subcontinent. And I think that we have to look at the Vikings in a very, very similar way to this. And I think that's why you get the latest Scandinavian styles coming in very quickly. They appear in Britain because, you know, you could invent your latest Ringerike design and three days later it can appear in Norfolk. There's nothing to stop that happening. exactly. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? If we look at migration from a modern perspective, it's not a sort of one-off 
thing you just go off and then you never go back. There is that constant connection back and forth, and I completely agree that must have been the case in the Viking Age, and earlier and later as well. Absolutely. I think this is, again, we were talking about this earlier on, I think this is one of the missing gaps in our knowledge. We have focused a lot on early Anglo-Saxon migration, on Viking migration, but what we've never really done is looked at that middle Anglo-Saxon period, which we tend to think of as English but actually is almost certainly combined with a lot of ongoing immigration and movement between not just the Scandinavian world, but I suspect France and Germany. Fantastic. Now, I do just have to mention what we are looking at right next to this. You've got several weapons. So you've got Mm. lots of swords, you've got an axe head, you've got some arrowheads here. Are these local as well? Where are these objects from? These are all local finds, but again, you draw attention to them because they're effectively of what we think of a Scandinavian style. And it suggests that people are bringing their weapons over with them, or potentially later on, they're actually having weapons made for them in a familiar style, or maybe even, just like we saw with brooches a minute ago, as part of their own cultural identity. They wanted to show themselves as still part of a cultural group. And, you know, you only need to think of, a, I don't know, somebody moving for work. They can still remain, dare I say, a Norwich City fan if they're working <laughs> in Leeds, and they probably want their son to grow up as a Norwich City fan. And it might well be the same with your Viking warrior settling down in Thetford, that he wants his son to remember that he was born in Hedderby rather than anywhere else. And I suspect that we have a lot of fashion dictated by that those sorts of underlying feelings and then they're recreated in the weaponry and interestingly 14 that you can see here was found buried with a skeleton in Thetford and so it suggests again that they are clinging on to those earlier beliefs so although it came from a Christian cemetery they're almost certainly wanting to be remembered in the way that they were brought up with burying objects with the dead. Absolutely. And the whole idea of what that means and religious meanings of grave goods, you know, we have this idea that if you're buried without grave goods, you are a Christian, are yes. you with you or not? But I think it's not as simple as that, is it? No, it really isn't. And I think this is where it's really interesting, going right the way back to the 7th century now, where things like Sutton Hoo we used to see as a strictly pagan burial. But we know now from other burials like Prittlewell that it could easily be a Christian burial as well. Yeah. So there's so much more nuance and understanding. It leaves bigger questions, of course, but it does make it incredibly more interesting to try and interrogate that data now. Okay, well, Tim, I think we've got a little bit sidetracked here, haven't we? We, I came here to talk about the Norman keep more than anything in the castle, and and we got stuck in the the Middle Saxon and Viking Age uh, galleries. Yeah, yeah, we just couldn't not. But let's move on to talk about the keep. And unfortunately, we can't actually go into the keep now, can we? Because you've got this huge, big development work going on there. Tell me more about that. It's a really exciting development now. I know I would say that, wouldn't I? But it's something that I've been involved in now for over 10 years through the planning stages. And the idea is that the keep, which had been completely stripped out to make it into a prison, is going to have its original Norman floor levels and rooms put back into it. So it'll be the first time that people will have been able to have appreciated those for centuries. And it's going to enable people to really understand the way that the building worked a lot better. And it's been one of the challenges that our visitors, we know, have wanted to come to Norwich Castle to see the Norman Castle and have found it really hard to interpret. 
And one of the reasons for that was that when Boardman, the architect who turned the prison into a museum, came here, he wanted to put the floor levels back where they had originally been. But every time he wanted to do that, he was overruled by the museum's committee because it was too expensive. Nothing much changes. So this project is enabling us to strip out the Victorian floor level and put the Norman floor level back in, which means that rather than walking in Norman midair when you walk across the Victorian floor, you will actually be able to go up into the Great Hall via the original four-building staircase. You'll then be able to go into the King's Chamber and see the chapel as it would have been in the full size. And I think most remarkably, and one of the things that gives me greatest pleasure actually, although I'm getting a medieval gallery out of it, is that for the first time ever, visitors will be able to visit all five levels of the keep, including the battlements, even if you're in a wheelchair. And I think, as far as I know, it's the only castle in the whole of the United Kingdom if you're in a wheelchair, you'll be able to see the view out of the battlements. And I think that is an incredible gift to everybody to be able to uh, look out and really enjoy the building. And as I said, I'm getting a medieval gallery out of it. One of the things that we're really excited about is that we are producing a new gallery of the medieval world in association in partnership with the British Museum. And so we'll have over a thousand objects on display and it will take you through the medieval world right the way from the conquest all the way up to the dissolution of the monasteries. Fantastic. So that's really going to put this site into its context, I suppose. So it's not just a keep and a castle, but actually get the visitors to understand the world that this was part of. That's right. And one of the key things that we're keen on showing is that a castle isn't just about knights and battle. The castle is a wider symbolic place. It's a royal palace, first and foremost. When it was built, it was designed, yes, as a defensible structure, but actually when you look at it militarily, it was not very well designed. So, for instance, the fore building, if you snuck underneath it, you could light a fire and break your way through the wall, and there was no way of the defenders actually defending themselves. So it is all about might, power, projecting that power and being a very comfortable place to live in at the same time. And it's a royal palace which is showing itself to be built by and used by the new Norman elite. And so we want to be able to show the whole world that they occupied and took over, right from the most humble people that did all of the work, all of the people that prayed, and then, of course, those who ruled, those who fought in society and established those three orders. And another one of the things that I think we really forget, particularly in the modern world, but which we want to draw out, is the absolutely essential role of religion and Christianity in the medieval world. Everybody was Christian, apart from, interestingly enough, a small but very significant part of the population, which was Jewish. And we had a very important Jewish population within Norwich. We actually have some of the only surviving poetry by a medieval Jewish person, Mayor of Norwich, and we have his poetry surviving, which we will again be giving due attention to within the gallery. Fantastic. So you really are giving so many different voices that represented Norwich at the time, I suppose. Well, this is the whole idea. And Norwich, of course, is not just an island. It floats within East Anglia, which was an incredibly rich and powerful place within the whole of England. Again, it's one of those things that in our post-industrial revolution history we tend to forget. But East Anglia was in many ways, and still is, the breadbasket of England, and that to be able to spend your time making jewellery or whatever, you needed to eat. And it's only by 
production of food and surplus production of food that can then move into towns that you're able to put your eye on other things. And Norfolk was a very, very wealthy county. It's an agricultural county. That's what made it so powerful. It's surrounded by the sea as well on two sides, effectively. And so it had all of those international connections across the North Sea. And we can see that, again, in the archaeology of Norfolk. There's an enormous amount of material that comes from overseas. We've got a fantastic chest that was made of Baltic oak, and that's because the best oak by then comes across from the Baltic. We've chopped all of our trees down, so we're now importing the stuff. And it's those little things that really help to make you realise that Norfolk... Norwich were part of an international world and those are the stories that we really want to bring out. Fantastic. Well, I can't wait to get back and see it when it's all done. I know you've got a lot of hard work in front of you to get it across the line. When is it meant to be finished? Ideally? We will be opening next year, the end of next year. So we're already starting to finish off certain elements. So we have, most importantly, a new two-storey toilet block, which is Perfect. just on the other side of that wall. And that will be open this summer. And then we open the new front entrance and a new cafe restaurant. And then the keep itself with all of the displays in association with the British Museum and VR learning experiences, a new early years gallery and of course all of the recreated rooms and when I say the room spaces we're not just talking about rooms, we're actually furnishing it with fabrics, with furniture, they will be open at the end of next year. Fantastic. Well, I can't wait to come back. Tim, thank you so much for taking me through. I can't wait to see what this turns out. And thank you so much for indulging a little Viking Age (laughs) detour along the way. It was an indulgence for us both, so let's be honest. (laughs) Brilliant. Thank you so much, Tim. Absolute pleasure. That brings us to the end of this episode and to our exclusive tour behind the scenes of Norwich Castle Museum and Art Gallery. That was Dr Tim Pestel, the Curator of Archaeology. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you did, do feel free to leave us a review and press the subscribe button if you haven't already. Don't forget, there's also a newsletter that you can subscribe to called Medieval Mondays, which gives you all the important medieval news you need in your life directly in your inbox. Just look at the episode notes for how to do that. Do join us again for the next episode. We'll have Matt Lewis, my co-host, back on Saturday for another episode, and I'll be back next Tuesday. Thank you all so much for listening. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman, and this has been Gone Medieval from History Hit. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gone Medieval. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out and you'll be doing me a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code MEDIEVAL at checkout.